Brea. Welcome back to another episode of the La Brea Purveya. My name is Pete Phillips, and I am your La Brea Purveyor. This week, we're continuing the double episodes uh, for the sake of catching up with the season premiere at the end of this month. So we're going to cover episodes six and seven, which take the story in a bit of a different direction. We're also going to feature our first guest, great friend of mine, Marissa Phillips. We're going to talk a very little bit about season two when we get to the in the media portion. And we're going to dig deeper on Eve Harris. We're going to talk about her character. Finally, this week I made a video that I'm going to post on patreon.com slash y'all heard. Uh, for those of you who don't listen to the end, Y'all Heard is sort of the parent podcast of this podcast, and it's a place where I can post things related to this podcast. So this video is about 10 minutes long, and it's going to answer some of the questions that I have had about how many people uh, may have fallen through the hole. So I'll talk about that a little bit later as well. But for now, let's just jump into things. Episode Recap Episode 6 is The Way Home, and since there are 10 episodes in a season, we can probably guess that they may discover a way home, but I don't think that they can, like, take it right away. Still, the hot goss around the 10,000 BC water cooler is that the light is closing, so we gotta get ourselves home. At the beginning of the episode, Eve is burying the letter that Gavin and Izzy got last episode. And she's standing next to a very comically large traffic light. I don't know if it's for planes or if it's not a traffic light at all, but it's kind of just a background thing, but also a little distracting. Eve gets a minute to catch up with Josh, and she tells him that Gavin's visions are real. Josh, there's something I need you to know about your dad. The things he sees. They're real. And he can see us here. You think dad can see us? I know, it's hard to believe, but... Yeah, because it's insane. I thought so, too. But it's true. Even if it is, when's the last time he came through for us? On anything? Levi is trying to reach anyone that he can on the walkie-talkie that they took off of the dead guy in the fort. The college professor cliche guy scoffs at him for trying, but then he reaches someone, an Air Force sergeant named Diana, who says that she is living on the beach in Santa Monica, which sounds kind of lovely. So I have a little bit of, of confusion, which is why I'm issuing a correction. I don't even know if this is officially a correction, but I can tell you that if you Google Mojave, California, it shows up as an unincorporated community in Kern County, California. It's about 100 miles away from Los Angeles. Last episode, I told you it was over 200 miles to get to the Mojave Dunes, which are in the Mojave Desert. And so at this point, I would lean more towards the Mojave Desert, even though it's a shorter distance from Mojave to L.A., I'm not really sure what's going on, but what I can tell you is that the person who had the Kelso College shirt on, the one who they found dead in one of the caves, from what I can gather, Kelso is in the Mojave Desert, and the Mojave Desert, again, is 234 miles if you were to go by car. My guess is you could peel off some of that, but you'd still probably be around 200 miles if you needed to travel from Kelso to Los Angeles by foot. According to Google... That could take you 78 hours 
and you would travel 238 miles. This is still putting you on roads, though, you know. So if you wanted to do some hiking in between, you know, climb through people's yards, that sort of thing, maybe it could be a little bit less. But for this episode and what I'm talking about here, uh, there is a 16-mile difference between Los Angeles and Santa Monica. Levi is ready to go find Diana. She is also in the Air Force, and she could help fix the plane, maybe. That would be great. Eve invites herself along for the trip, and lucky for them, Billy and Tony finally got their Jeep fixed, so Levi and Eve can borrow it to drive there, which they do, and they find a little camp, but it's empty. And then Diana shows up from the periphery with a gun trained on Levi and Eve. She's cautious because... Her friend had that walkie-talkie, but he's not with them. But it turns out that they saw things falling through the hole in the sky, and the guy with the walkie-talkie went to check it out to see if he could find the people who fell through. So for all she knows, they killed him. We know better, though. Uh, and when it all settles down, it turns out that she is Dr. Nathan's fiance, and her plane's pneumatic system is perfectly intact. So once they get that sucker replaced in Levi's plane, they can just fly into a light and go home. Back on the surface, Rebecca Aldridge and Gavin are ready to fly, but that is when the Department of Homeland Security guy shows up. His name is Markman. He keeps showing up, so I guess I'll use his name. And he's like, cut this crap out, guys. And then an archaeologist bursts in and says, hey, you've got to see this. It's fossilized remains of Levi's plane, but broken apart and surrounded by a bunch of dead bodies. And this just appeared in the site that they were digging in. So this can only mean that the plane doesn't get fixed and that they all die trying to fly away. This emboldens Gavin's desire to fly into the hole, but he gets arrested because he's not allowed to do that. He and Izzy and Aldrich are all detained. Izzy repeats exposition about exactly what's going on, while, for some reason, Gavin starts to grow suspicious of Aldridge. But he also has no choice but to trust her and Dr. Nathan, who has arrived and is going to sneak them out to get a message through the hole. In the meantime, Lily tells Ty that Veronica was also kidnapped. She is a victim, just like Lily was. But she hasn't returned, and Lily is getting worried. So Ty takes up the duty of trying to find Veronica. Also, if the plane gets fixed, only so many people can get in the plane at one time. So they come up with a plan to draw names from a Tupperware container. And guess who gets on the list? Josh. For real? Come on. And Lucas is the last name that they choose, and he's happy, but he can't board the plane to the surface without his drugs, so he basically drags Scott into the woods so that Scott can show him where the drugs are. But Scott's not having an easy time doing that. And then suddenly there's good news. The plane works. Yes, there's hope. But the fossils are still in modern times, so the future knows that it's going to crash, but the past doesn't, if that's even where they are. Just then, something comes through the hole and crashes into the ground. It's a drone, and the panel on it says open, so they do. And it's what looks like a little phone with a video of Gavin telling them not to fly in Levi's plane. You would think that this would divide the camp, but it's actually everyone else on one side and even Mary Beth on the other. Most are willing to take the risk, including Josh. 
Levi brings up a pretty good point, though. He's kind of like, well, if we know that the plane is going to break, then we can look at it again more closely and we can fix it so that it doesn't. And they do, and they find a miscalculation. So that must be the problem. It couldn't be anything else, like maybe one of these giant birds getting into one of the engines or maybe being hit by a pterodactyl midair. Ty sets out and finds Veronica. She's kneeling by her dad's grave mourning. She's afraid that if they go back to the surface, that she'll go to jail because she helped kidnap Lily. Ty says that that won't happen, that she is also a victim. She says, though, that her dad, quote-unquote, freed her from her old life, which I personally was surprised that Ty missed. So she asks for a private moment to say goodbye to her dad, and when Ty turns around, she hits him in the head with a stick and knocks him out. It's so rude. Mary Beth also says that there are 30 people who need to fly back. And that's a lot less than I expected. This show is a lot sadder when you know that only 30 people survived the fall into the hole. I didn't expect the 1.3 zillion people like reviewer Glenn Garvin of the libertarian website Reason.com speculated, but I thought there were going to be at least hundreds of people. And that's why I didn't understand how six rabbits that they caught in the wild could feed everyone. On the surface, the government and presumably the media are telling people that everyone who fell in the hole is dead. My estimate for the number of people who fell in the hole is 3,000, which means only 1% of people survived the fall. And this puts the show in a totally different world for me. We are quickly diverted to the chopper flying back to the ranch so Gavin and Aldridge can fly in the whole plane. Ooh, tension. When the Department of Homeland Security shows up, Izzy and Dr. Nathan play dumb, but then the plane appears and flies off. Markman from the DHS gets on the comms and tells Gavin that they'll shoot down his plane if he doesn't land. My F-15s are in position to take you down. Don't make me do this. We're not going to make it, Gavin. I'm sorry. I thought it would work this time. What do you mean this time? You asked me before what I was hiding. I don't have time to tell you everything. I can tell you this. What's been happening to you is for a reason. What reason? What reason? Hey, where are you going? Gavin, do you hear me? We will fire. My destiny is down there, but yours is here. There's another way to save her. Go back to the beginning, Gavin. November 16th, 1988. Remember that date. Gavin, what was that? Bring the plane down now. What the hell was that? At the same time, Mary Beth and Eve steal the Jeep so they can talk Levi and Diana out of flying the plane. But Diana's been in this hole for three years now, so she is ready to go. And because of that defiance, Mary Beth pulls a gun to try to force them to not fly. But Diana also has a gun, and she shoots at Mary Beth. But she misses, and it hits the fuel tank. Mary Beth also instinctively shoots back and gets Diana in the stomach. Despite Sam's best efforts, she dies. Also, Scott and Lucas can't find the drugs. Lucas is kind of being a jerk like he always is, and Scott is busting his butt digging. But when they do find something, it's not the heroin. It's bars of gold labeled 1863. Scott seems a little disturbed, but Lucas is ecstatic. 
Amid the collapse of the Confederacy, General Henry Halleck, chief of staff of the Union armies, wrote in 1865 that Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederacy, was fleeing with large quantities of specie. Specie is basically money in the form of coins rather than notes, like dollar bills. Halleck stated that Richmond bankers estimated specie valued from 6 to 13 millions were traveling south from Goldsboro, North Carolina, in wagons. Halleck ordered generals to intercept the rebel leaders and any wealth that they were transporting. Davis did, in effect, take with him a half a million dollars in gold and silver bullion, some of it Mexican silver coinage, when he fled the city on April 3rd in 1865 by train. However, the treasury increasingly became an encumbrance on his flight, and Davis had dispersed the treasury along the way. Davis had nothing with him when he was captured in the end on May 10th in Irwinville, Georgia. In modern times, Finders Keepers, a lost treasure locate and recovery service, filed a lawsuit against the Justice Department over its failure to produce documents on the FBI's search for legendary Confederate gold. Their search took place nearly four years ago at a remote woodland site in northwestern Pennsylvania. Quote, with this request, plaintiff seeks to confirm the FBI's recovery of Civil War era gold buried in the mountains of Pennsylvania based in significant part due to the scientific evidence of the gold's existence that plaintiff provided to the FBI, says the lawsuit. As of the release of this episode, no conclusions have come from the case. At the end of episode six, we have Eve looking kind of like a major tool when the light in the sky disappears, along with all hope. Almost instantly, Josh is there, and he kind of blames her for everything. He touches on the foiled plans, Diana being dead, all hope lost, a bum fuel tank, and he puts it all on Eve. As expected, she takes it. I'm sure that the guilt you feel is far worse than any punishment you might receive. And this isn't Josh's worst betrayal this podcast episode. When episode seven begins, Scott is showing off the Civil War gold to Josh and Riley. This seems like a terrible idea. I don't know why he thinks it's okay for him to show off somebody else's gold. And I know you're thinking, well, it's not necessarily just Lucas's gold, but like Lucas found it and he said, I'm rich. He didn't say we're rich. So I think he's kind of Lucasing this gold. He speculates, though, that the gold fell through another hole that opened up in the 1800s. And if that's true, then there have probably been more holes and they can probably get back to the surface through another one when that opens and appears. I really love his optimism, but Sad Sack Josh is there to crap on their hope. And then he runs into Eve. I know you're angry with me, but I was just trying to keep you safe. Don't make this about me. We're here because you chose to believe Dad. Look where that got us. Josh... You would have died on that plane. Yeah? Well, I was willing to take the risk. So was everyone else. You took that choice away. We're going to have to find a way to get past this. I don't think we can. Now, Ty was out cold all night, and luckily he hasn't been eaten by a predator. His hands and feet are bound, though, and when he wakes up, he's facing the woman who layers pelts and has all those nice accessories made out of teeth and stones. Instead of seeing comfort, she charges at him with a blade, and then she kills a snake that was right behind him. And then she frees him. 
as he gets up to walk away, he kind of passes out. So she takes him to her place. Like, I guess that it's her place. At the camp, they have a funeral for Diana, which is strange since they just met her and they didn't seem to do this for Eddie or at this point for any of the others who fell through the hole and died. Since she killed a guy, Sam says that Mary Beth should turn over her gun, but she doesn't want to. Remember, there's a bunch of giant animals and stuff living in this area. Lucas, her son, tells everyone that she has killed before and she has also used self-defense as a justification and that she should be exiled from the camp. A bold wish, sure, but they are lumping her in with Eve. And so the woman who killed someone and the woman who stopped you from flying into the light back home are in this sort of thing together. So it's almost unanimous. Banished! Josh not only voted against his mom, but he did it while looking her directly in the eyes like some sort of villain. For the record, in this situation, we're dealing with a situation called parental alienation. I know this sounds like a parent alienating a child, but it's actually the correct term. There's also a distinction between estrangement and alienation. The funny part to me is that estrangement is when the rejection of the parent is justified, whereas alienation says rejection is unjustified. Who determines the justification? I'm not sure. But I, like Riley, feel like Josh's rejection of Eve is unjustified. But often this kind of thing shows up in separation situations where one parent turns a child against another. Josh has already rejected his father, and now he's rejecting his mother for believing in his father. I think you know what I'm going to say. Josh, you suck. On the surface, after the plane comes down, Gavin is once again arrested, and Markman comes in and says, look, we'll make this all go away if you sign this non-disclosure agreement. No talking about the hole ever again. He does, and he goes home. That night, after Izzy goes to bed, Dr. Nathan comes by, and Gavin explains his winding road of thoughts that, to me, seemed to go nowhere. She said to go back to the beginning, and then she gave me a date, November 16th, 1988. That's around the same time I was adopted. Somehow my past is tied to all this. I just need to figure out how. And then maybe I can bring them home. So what are you going to do? He puts up a front with Izzy that he's not going to talk about what happened. She's bothered, but she goes to school anyway. And while she's away, Gavin will play with Dr. Nathan, who accessed his sealed Child Protective Services files to discover that he was found by a church in Topanga, California. I thought I knew you, Topanga. While Gavin is at Dr. Nathan's, he sees a picture of Diana, which triggers one of his visions where he sees Diana basically after she's been shot. He doesn't give all of that up, though, and Dr. Nathan can see that something has affected him. So he confirms to Dr. Nathan, a.k.a. Sophia, if we want to be friends with her now, that Diana is in the hole, but he doesn't say anything about her being injured. After all, he needs her help, and I think he also just doesn't want to break her heart in this moment. So just as the native woman was going to leave Ty, the big storm comes rolling in. The storm is the name of this episode, after all. So she decides that she's going to stay, and she and Ty can sort of hang out for a little bit. She says that they've met Sky people before who've said that they don't mean harm, but they cause it anyway. So these two people hang out for a bit, um, and Ty asks how she knows English, but she doesn't really answer that question. He also brings up how the old guy killed Eddie, but she says that that can't be. 
Regardless of their disagreements, they bond a bit during the storm, and he confesses that he wanted to die before landing in the hole. He says, trying to survive has taught me how to live. From Psychology Today, when we don't have a sense of purpose in our life, it makes us more vulnerable to boredom, anxiety, and depression. Having an addictive personality can make us vulnerable to substance abuse as well. Alcohol or drugs are, of course, a way of alleviating psychological discord, but at the same time, they can be seen as a way of gaining a very basic sense of purpose, which is to satisfy the addiction. On the other hand, having a strong sense of purpose can have a powerful, positive impact on your life. When you have a sense of purpose, you never get up in the morning wondering what you're going to do with yourself. When you're, quote, in purpose, that is, engaged with and working towards your purpose, life becomes easier, less complicated, and less stressful. Of the possible purposes you could have in life, one of them could be survival. From the same article, This is the most basic level of purpose, common to all living things on the planet. It means the effort to meet basic needs for food, shelter, or to protect one's survival in the face of others who threaten it. This level of purpose is common in very poor countries or countries at war, or with brutally oppressive regimes, or for members of certain castes or ethnic groups that are oppressed by the majority. Once this basic purpose has been achieved, human beings have to sort of switch to a different type of purpose, or else they will fall into purposelessness, bringing psychological discord. So prior to falling in the hole, Ty had a lack of purpose in his life. We discover that it was related to his medical diagnosis and that he would eventually die. This can throw the striving for other purposes right out the window and leave him in psychological discord. Now that he's fallen into the hole, he has a distinct sense of purpose, and that is to protect himself and others. Anyway, after being banished, Eve plans to ride her guilt all the way to the caves with Mary Beth. But with this storm, it's kind of a bad time to travel. Plus, they can't leave before Mary Beth, of course, has the last word with Lucas. Finally, she and her son decide that despite being related to each other, they need to be apart because Lucas is so whiny and she is so strong-headed. Neither will cede any space, so they should go their separate ways. And that's what happens right before a telephone pole falls, causing a sort of rubble-based cave that Lucas lives in to collapse at the entrance. So Lucas and Mary Beth are stuck in there together. And Lucas is passed out, lucky for Mary Beth. Eve runs to move the rubble, but it's just too heavy. So Josh says that he will take the Jeep to an 18-wheeler that someone saw. And since that's an 18-wheeler, there must be tools in it. And I'm not sure why anybody didn't think to use the Jeep to move the rubble. According to PlanetDodge.com, all two-door Jeep Wrangler models can tow up to 2,000 pounds. A cubic yard of solid concrete could weigh 2,025 pounds. So I'm not saying I'm right, but I would have given it a shot. Under the rubble, Lucas eventually wakes up, and we see a whole new side of him. He is terrified. It turns out that he's claustrophobic, and Mary Beth gets him to calm down using techniques from his childhood. But like any mom, she can't just leave it at that. She insists that since they're stuck under rubble, that they talk about the dead dad problem. She killed Lucas's dad, and Lucas is mad about that. As dust and rocks fall from above... While the gang outside tries to move the rubble, Mary Beth explains to him that she killed the dad on purpose because Lucas and his father were involved in stealing drugs from the police. The father was a cop, I think. 
and then selling them on the street. When the father got caught, he was going to turn in Lucas and say that it was all his idea and let him take the fall while the father got off scot-free. Lucas can't believe it, but eventually he does, because we have to move this story along. And then they hold hands while the gang outside get the idea to blow up the rubble. Yep, sounds safe to me. Riley joins Josh on the ride to the 18-wheeler, which of course has no tools in it. It's instead a wardrobe trailer. So she takes some nice coats while they're there, but they don't have any tools. Instead of driving back in the severe weather, they stay in the trailer. And she tries to talk some sense into Josh because he's being such a jerk. But as I've said time and time again, Josh sucks. Then they almost kiss, but Riley stops it. Thank God! Because she hears that the storm is over so they can go back to the camp. Even Mother Nature knows that Josh doesn't deserve any action down here. When they get back to camp, everyone is praising Eve because they saved Mary Beth and Lucas, and Eve was sort of a driving force to make that happen. This is what convinces Josh that maybe his mom's not so bad and that she shouldn't be banished. They re-vote, and she and Mary Beth can stay as long as Mary Beth gives up her gun, which she does. All of this is kind of just to flesh out characters and do some team building for the group. The real action is on the surface. If you're convinced that Gavin's adoption is actually meaningful to the story, then it's worth knowing that they went out to the church in Topanga to meet the minister who found him as a child. The minister says that she found him by the side of the road with a girl. A girl? What girl? Now who is she? After they thank her and leave, he sees a picture of Diana on Sophia's phone, and he has to tell her that she's dead. So he does. She asks how she died, and Gavin dodges that bullet. No pun intended. (laughs) (laughs) He gives Dr. Nathan time to mourn, and I think part of him expects her to not help him anymore. If her fiancé is dead, why would she want to get to the hole now? But she does help. Of course she helps. She's Dr. Sophia Nathan. You're damn right. In digging, she finds that the girl is grown up, and she is an artist named Ella Jones. They go to her gallery, where there is a handprint symbol sculpture. So she's got to know what's going on, right? They just need to find her to talk to her. And to end the episode, on a sweet note, Ty gets a name for the native woman, which makes me feel better for my job here. I don't like calling her the native woman or the woman in layered pelts. Her name is Para, and they go to part ways, but she's like... Wait. You don't know your way. No, I suppose I don't. Maybe you could point me in the right direction. Maybe I can. Me personally, I think I see heart eyes. Or maybe I'm just shipping any romance that doesn't have anything to do with Josh. What just happened? So, I'm revisiting the question of how many people fell in the hole. As I explained, I have a 10-minute YouTube video to explain why I came to the conclusion of 3,000 people, which I still think is a low conservative estimate. But based on the time of day, the location, the traffic, everything like that, I'm going to go with 3,000 people fell in the hole. And if 3,000 people fell in, like I said before, only 1% of them survived. And again, that really does reframe the show for me. It makes it a lot more tragic. I want to know now how the nation is coping with the tragedy of this sinkhole. I expect news reports, celebrities probably died, very important people probably died, more important than celebrities. 
And also, I don't know a lot, but how do you recover from a sinkhole that large? Like, how does the city of Los Angeles <laughs> move on? You know, you can't dump enough of anything into that hole uh, in order to fill it. So what's going to happen there? Also, to remind you, this is a rewatch for me. But for the sake of this podcast, I'm going to throw this question on the board, even though I know the answer. What could Gavin's adoption possibly have to do with a portal into the past? Related, why was Aldridge so dodgy? Like, how could him discovering where he came from as a child get him back to the past? We don't really know. We don't really know. Now, a question that I've been wondering to myself for a couple of episodes now is how Josh planned to get his $250,000 worth of heroin home. But now I really do want to know, enough to share with you all, how he plans to get a crate of gold that he can't carry on his own back. Like, it's heavy and really obvious. I feel like it would need its own seat on the plane. And also, it's going to throw off weight on the plane as well. We also still don't know how these people learned English, but I think that Para is probably our best shot at finding out. Maybe we won't get an answer to that uh, this season, but maybe we will. Who knows? What is going on with Rebecca Aldridge? Why did she bail on Gavin? Why didn't someone get her when she did? Like, they saw her fall out of the plane with a parachute, with a parachute. Um, so why didn't somebody seek her out to try to detain her? And why is she so damn suspicious in this show? She's going to jump out of plane and she leaves like a cryptic riddle behind for Gavin. Like, give the guy something to work with here. In the hole, why isn't anyone placing faith in Scott's hypothesis that more holes have happened and that more holes could happen? It's sound logic to me, but I wonder where in the world the next hole could be. Or are all of the holes on the West Coast? And finally, where does Veronica think that she's going, all alone in 10,000 BC? I don't mean to sound obvious, but I can't imagine what she's thinking when she tries to escape all of these people. There's nowhere really to hide. There's nowhere to live. She doesn't seem to have any skills that could lend her to surviving on her own. So what's her plan, man? Digging deeper. Eve should probably be the character that we have the most things to say about in a digging deeper segment. But because of that, I find myself taking her for granted a lot. Though Eve has been at the center of most of the action in the whole, she ultimately feels a little flat to me. Sure, she has a lot of guilt, and she misses her family, but it doesn't really seem to shift very much. It sometimes feels like we're just watching her spiral to nowhere. No matter how much good she does, she still feels terrible. So here's the actor, Natalie Z, to talk about the character of Eve that she portrays. The role that I play in the series uh, is named Eve. We all worked very hard at naming her, and so I have a little piece of that. She is she's a woman who is also a mom who is not altogether uh, satisfied or happy with where she is in her life. And in the midst of all of that, she gets um, sucked into a sinkhole. So she gets to sort of make that epic shift from, you know, this 21st century kind of existential ennui to I just, I just got to stay alive and keep my family alive and not starve to death and not get killed. 
And now here is an interview with our first ever guest to give her hot take on Eve. I'm here with my guest, Marissa Phillips. Hi, we're not related. Marissa, tell me about your history with the show La Brea. Um, I saw La Brea, what is it, like one or two years ago uh, with my father. We were just sitting around and we saw a commercial for it. And we decided to watch it on a whim, and we thought it was horrible. <laughs> but we thought it was, like, hilariously horrible. Mm-hmm. So horrible that I think I had to tell you to watch it, because we just kept going, like, what? That doesn't yeah. make sense. <laughs> so now I've started re-watching it so that I can uh, I can watch uh, listen to your podcast. And when do you think your dad quit watching La Brea? <laughs> oh, my dad quit after the first episode. Okay, okay. <laughs> because it's only fun to watch... It was only fun to watch together, mm-hmm. and it's yeah. only fun to watch because you're doing a podcast. It is a f-ing horrific show to watch by yourself because it's full of so much nonsense. You either need someone to look at wide-eyed and laugh with or someone to just talk about how stupid it is. Hey, imagine me taking like eight pages of notes per episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know people are listening at least. <laughs> so... I saved spotlighting the character of Eve until I could get a hold of you because okay. I know that you have st- some strong feelings about Eve. I have some strong feelings about Josh. I think I've made it clear over the course of this podcast that I don't like Josh, but yeah. you don't like Eve, right? I'm sorry, do you like Eve? I'm not totally up to date with your most recent podcast, but do you like Eve? I don't hate Eve. Okay. I hate, uh, you know, I hated Eve immediately. I mean, not from like the first scene. But I was just like, this is white savior shit at its finest, like maybe like 10 minutes in. Like, first of all, I will just say she comes in with entitled energy. I'll just say that. Like, she comes in as someone who will speak to your manager. I know that's cliche to say right mm. now, but she, she just comes in with that energy. But fine. I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. Interestingly enough, according to NBC's publicity, she is apparently an office manager. So. <laughs> Sometimes she speaks to herself. <laughs> yeah, she. Yeah, I was watching it and I forgot. I would keep forgetting what she did for a living because she just seems to be a fucking expert on everything. I will say, okay, if you have not watched the show, she is a like fit, but like thin white lady. She's not built. She's not like powerful. She's not like scary unless you're afraid of white women, which. Some people might be. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I will say right from the start, when you first meet the characters, there's a cop woman who is intimidating. Mm-hmm. And that cop is, like, trying to steal some extra food for herself. And this, would Eve, be, this would be Mary Beth listeners. Yeah, and Eve finds out. Her son uh, brings it to her attention. And Eve is like, what are you doing? Like, give me those. And then, like, the cop is like, Oh, you're a little firecracker. Fine. And then she gives her all the food. But like, how about this one episode? Same, same two people interaction where the uh, traffic cop is giving out food and Mary Beth goes, Oh, well, you know, the traffic cop decided to ration the food that we have and give it out, you know, bit by bit. And Eve says, I think that's a good idea. <laughs> Mary Beth goes, That's because you didn't get like the pickle nachos or some shit. <laughs> And then Josh goes, why do you care? You have, you probably have some protein bars stored away. And again, I don't like Josh. But then the lady goes, you need to shut your mouth. And then Eve goes, I think you need to eat your breakfast somewhere else. See? Yeah. Okay. So this is what I was getting at. Like, like 
Well, first of all, actually, I don't like Josh either, because Josh is the one who first, like, tells on the cop lady, and he does it in such a f***ing tattly way. <laughs> but my point is just, like, if it's going to head with just this, like, skinny office manager lady and a f***ing intimidating cop, like, why does the cop need to listen to her? The cop doesn't have to listen to her at all. Like, yeah. well, who are you to tell me what to do? Should the cop have been stealing the protein bars? No. But the cop should be the one being, like... Back the f*** off, lady. The, the other interesting aspect of that is that she wasn't stealing the protein bars. She was, like, hoarding her own protein bars. Yeah, I know. So, I mean, like, <laughs> first off, Eve is the is the moral, uh, the moral and ethics police. Like, she decides what is right and wrong in this new little civilization we're creating. Mm-hmm. Now, I took some notes. Uh, first of all, she's an expert on everything. She's an expert how to deal with animals. She can tell you what kind of food you can forage. And she says, like, oh, I grew up on a farm, whatever. But I want to point out, I don't know if it's episode two or episode three, but her and Ty have been, like, hiking for a long time. They are looking for the Hispanic guy who's injured. Don't remember his name. (laughs) And Ty is, like, getting really, like, winded and tired. And Eve is like, here, drink some of this water. You don't look good. Oh, yeah, this is a good one. (laughs) And Ty drinks it. He still has some left. And he goes, Eve, why don't you drink? And she's like, oh, no, I don't need water. I wake up and run 10 miles a day. <laughs> and I'm just like, that doesn't, first of all, it doesn't mean you don't need water. I was like, what the f*** are you talking about? Also, I think she was trying to say, like, I don't get tired as easily as you. I know, but that, but no, I know that's what she meant, but it was just like, calm down, lady. You're not like superwoman. Also, you're like in the middle of nowhere. Drink some water also that's like a lot of miles <laughs> especially in los angeles where do you find 10 miles to run yeah i don't even know i want to also point out that she always tells people when it is and when it isn't time to run okay <laughs> like when you see a bear well, somebody has to <laughs> no, no no but let me get to that when they see a bear they're like oh what do i do when something happens, she's like, guys, don't move. And, like, part of me would be like, why do you fucking know what I'm supposed to do here? The point why that is notable is because she is often accompanied by a fucking Navy SEAL. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes she's like, wait, run now. Oh, wait, don't move. And I'm like, bitch, why are you telling me what to do? I want the Navy SEAL to tell me what to do. For some reason, she is the fucking expert and the fucking authority in every situation. And I think at one point, someone's like, oh, you know, I think we're in, this is not what they say, but like, oh, I think uh, we're actually in 10,000 BC. And she's like, you know what? I think we are. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, we are. Oh, yeah. Like, bitch, you're not a scientist. Like, mm-hmm. she just has a fucking take on everything. Oh, and the, the tie is going to, like, kill himself at one point, And she's just like, wait, don't kill yourself. <laughs> You need to help me get medicine for my son. And and then he's like, oh, you know what? I won't kill myself. Yeah. And I, I'm just like, bitch, this bitch don't need to, like, do anything. She just saves f***ing everyone. <laughs> she just f***ing steps into a room and everyone is saved. I f***ing can't stand her. I just can't stand her because she doesn't have to try. And Now, in uh, the episode that we're covering in this podcast episode, she actually uh, finds herself on the outs with everybody. Sweet. Okay. <laughs> but it doesn't last very long. Uh, during a storm, she dis- she decides that she's going to try to help free Mary Beth and Lucas, her son. 
who got stuck under some rubble. And because she tries to do that, everybody goes, I guess she's better than we thought she was. <laughs> but again, it's not a big ask to try to save somebody from under some rubble. Uh, the alternative would be just, I guess, going and hiding under something yourself. I, I, I Honestly, I just feel like there's a Navy SEAL. He should be the leading authority. And when we run, where we hide, how we ration things, things mm-hmm. like that. Not this random lady. And... I don't think she says anything really insightful to stop someone from killing themselves. And yeah, also- I was really, I was really uh, torn with that one, where I thought, you know, like it's ten thousand BC. I feel like it's his right to kill himself if he wants to at this point. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I know. Also, um, it, when Ty is like, "Oh, you know, I, I don't want to kill myself anymore. Here, take my gun." And while I understand if he doesn't want to kill himself anymore, he shouldn't have that temptation. But I will say, Ty has come in, has like, has like come in and saved people with that gun. Ty has done more for everyone than her, almost. He has stopped people from dying. He has saved people from animals. Like, Ty has a shit. If anything, I would rely on Ty and the Navy SEAL. Like, this way just echoes what other people say, but louder. (laughs) I don't know. I can't, it's just, just 100% the first episode I was like, white savior like and and her husband is just like fucking coming i mean i'm not gonna go into the whole thing but her husband is like coming in like being able to save everyone and being smarter than the government and all this bullshit and i'm just like this is why i find myself wanting to get into the i guess you'd say lesser characters more than the harris family because the harris family just seems so much like you're describing they they can do no wrong they have like no issues everything just works out except for you know her one daughter not having a leg and yet josh how old is josh he's a f-ing, like tattletale whiny bitch i believe he's a sophomore in high school <laughs> i feel like the mother also talks to him like like he's a baby mm-hmm. i don't know he i really don't like them <laughs> so marissa uh before i let you go um i got two questions for you the first question to help our audience out, could you tell us your ethnic background? Oh, I'm Puerto Rican. (laughs) (laughs) Just so you guys don't think that she's a mad white woman complaining about other white women. (laughs) And I'm sorry, I'm not just trying to make a black and white statement. Pete is white, if you didn't know that. (laughs) Love him dearly. It's just when there are blameless white people, but the Indian guy is kind of treated like a joke. The black guy is treated like he's like mentally like really struggling and he always has to turn to the white lady for help. Like, it's just like, I don't like that. The only other uh, characteristic that NBC seems to give her in the press is that she's a helicopter mom. And the only reason that we learn that is because Josh says it in the car. He says, hey, mom, this helicopter parenting is getting a little out of control because she drives them to school every day. Well, he is old enough that in the first, like, 10 minutes, like, when they do land in this, you know, world, she's just like, stand next to me, don't let me lose sight of you at any moment. And then he's like, oh, pee. And she's like, remain vigilant. Ah." (laughs) So I think she brings that sort of, that helicoptery sort of just over controlling vibe to things which again is something that i think certain white people are inclined to do (laughs) so 
Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Keep up the good work. I love your podcast. <laughs> do you have anything that you would like to plug before you leave? Do you usually do plugs that I don't remember? I, I haven't had a guest. <laughs> oh, uh, I'm just going to plug within this podcast, plug the podcast. <laughs> if you're listening this far, keep listening. This is a great podcast. Thank you, thank you. In the media reviews. There has been a lot of press about La Brea season two coming out. There's a trailer. There's all sorts of stuff out there, but I can't watch that until I hit the end of season one with you guys. So I'm going to talk a little bit about season two because I think this is a good thing for us to talk about without giving up very much detail about what exactly is going to happen. So coming in from comicbook.tv, uh, the headline is NBC has great news for this fan favorite series, La Brea, but there's a catch. Genre-bending mystery series La Brea is returning for a second season on NBC. Yay! Though the next installment of the story may look a little different than its freshman outing. Again, no spoilers are coming up. Despite less-than-stellar critical reviews, <laughs> La Brea was a solid ratings hit through its first season in the past year, leading NBC to give it a bigger second season. La Brea's next chapter will be longer than 10 episodes, and it may arrive in a couple of different batches. According to a report from Australia's Sydney Morning Herald, the second season of La Brea will actually be 14 episodes in length, four more than its 10-episode debut season. Additionally, TV Line reports that season two will be split in half. As production continues in Australia, the network wants La Brea to return to the air sooner than later, and this will likely result in two halves of the same season, allowing La Brea to be back in NBC's schedule this fall. So we know that the premiere is coming up in a few weeks, and it's probably going to do one of those sort of mid-season breaks around the holidays, and then come back again in January. That's sort of what I'm thinking as it stands right now. To continue the article for a little bit of context... La Brea was the biggest new show of last season, delivering the third largest overall audience of any freshman broadcast network series. Only FBI International and NCIS Hawaii exceeded La Brea's performance. Unlike these two shows, however, La Brea is in a spinoff of something that is already established. So this concludes another episode of the La Brea Purveya. Thank you for joining me. It's been wonderful. Uh, I hope that you found us in our new feed that exists on its own. But if you would like to contribute to the show in any way, you can sign up at patreon.com slash y'all heard. Uh, y'all heard is the parent podcast of this podcast. And if you enjoyed listening to Marissa in this show, you can hear a lot more from her in that show. If you'd like to contribute to the show in any way with uh, an email about your thoughts, or even if you want to be a guest on the show like Marissa was, shoot us an email at shout at y'allheard.me. And until the next episode, have a great week ahead. Mm -hmm.